big rocks and all that sort of thing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, welcome, patrons. Uh, this is a Patreon-only podcast from me, Mick, so no John here today. Um, and that's... Uh, Partly because I also want to talk about Pete Mikowski. Um And John uh, didn't really know Pete uh, or, or knew him a little. Certainly knew his work. Everyone knew his work. But Pete Mikowski for me, was someone incredibly special who... And I don't really know if he knew this or not, but he, he played a huge part in my life uh, at very early important significant stages I've written about Pete in the past about how we met um, uh, which was way back in 1976 when I lived in this huge sort of converted guest house in Ealing called Chanda House um, it had like 12 bedrooms uh, and it had been over three floors and it had been taken over by a whole bunch of hippies um, who'd all been to uni and knew each other from college and things like that, and into which uh, I found myself at the age of 17 after my dad threw me out. Um, anyway, that's another story, but I was living at Chander. I'd been there about six months, and Pete's older sister, Yvonne, uh, had moved in, and uh, she was very beautiful, a year or two older than Pete. Pete was a year or two older than me. And everybody had a crush on Yvonne. Um, but like a lot of beautiful young ladies in their 20s, um, who loads of people were, you know, enamoured with, put it like that, it was very hard to um, make an impression. Um, but I tried. We all tried. None succeeded. Uh, because she already had uh, she already, already had her heart broken too many times by all kinds of wankers, and um, anyway, became friends. I got friend zoned very early, uh, but she was lovely and and older, and so very interesting. And, uh, and then one day, um, her younger brother turned up to visit her, and as I say, I've kind of written about those days. Um, I was selling bits of speed in those days and, and Pete, like so many of us in Ealing in those days, was uh, a speed freak. But that wasn't the important connection. It was the fact that he was a writer for Sounds. I didn't know Sounds. I'd never really read it. I, I wasn't reading any music papers anymore by the time I was 18. I was listening to all kinds of stuff that was of no interest whatsoever to the music papers. So I just got to know him as a guy, and he was great, very fun. Um, but then, of course, the fact that he had this, uh, I didn't realise it, but this quite sort of glamorous job on sounds. He was a staff writer. Intrigued me. I'd always written. And um, I thought, wow, I'd like to do that. Uh, but Pete was, uh, he was kind of like the UK version of Cameron Crowe. Um, they were probably about the same age. I think Pete was about 15 when he first had a few bits and pieces published in Sounds. Um, and I think he worked there as an office boy or something like that in the days when companies had office boys and tea ladies and postal clerks and all that kind of stuff. Um, and did some reviews and just had that enormous enthusiasm that, that Cameron Crowe had on Rolling Stone when he was a teenager. But all the older journalists 
you know, were into Dylan and McCartney and Lennon and that whole thing. Um, none of them were into Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or Deep Purple. And, of course, Pete, being a teenager, he was into all of it. And... Um, and that's where some of the important kind of relationships he had that lasted right through his adult years. Uh, Richie Blackmore, for instance, who, who never had a great relationship with music journalists, took to Pete immediately. The story, as I recall it, that Pete told me was that um, he'd gone to review Deep Purple, some show in London, and... Um, and in those days, the music press was so important that, you know, you'd get invited backstage and taken good care of and all the rest of it. Uh, uh, but music journalists could also be very pompous and they would swan in and, yeah, very yeah, decent, you know. Pete came in like the fan he was, just hooting with delight. And Blackmore, very astute as he is, could see immediately that this was essentially a huge fan first uh, who also did a bit of writing for sounds. And they stayed very close for a long time. I mean, right till the end, Pete was one of the only people, really, that Richie Blackmore had any time for on the music press, including me. Similar story with Jimmy Page. Um, they didn't connect in the same way as Pete had with Blackmore, not back then. But, um, you know, Pete wrote this fantastic review of Zeppelin when they did Earl's Court in 75 at a time when the enemy and all those sorts of people were busy, you know, putting the boot in. Um, no one talked about heavy metal in the mid-70s. There was heavy rock, album rock. Um, but Zeppelin weren't popular with the beard strokers and the intellectuals. Uh, but again, Page and Zeppelin could see immediately that that wasn't who Pete was. He was a genuine fan. And that became his kind of calling card. Uh, on, I'm drinking coffee. Hang on. Oh, my God. Um, anyway, by the time I met Pete, he was very well established. He was, uh, I think he just joined the staff on sound as a staff writer. And he took me to a Thin Lizzy gig at the Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, he had a spare ticket. I couldn't understand why he had a spare ticket. It wasn't until I became a music journalist a little while after that I realised your spare tickets and your plus ones, you know, you, your friends soon get fed up being the guy you take with them, especially when you're going to three, four, five shows a week. Very quickly you learn that you're going on your own. But Pete asked me if I wanted to go. He knew I was a huge Lizzie fan, and off we went. It was the Johnny the Fox tour. It was the shows, in fact, that they recorded that later went on to Live and Dangerous, although, um, you know, they lied about it and said they were recorded in Toronto or some other bullshit excuse to tax reasons. But they were the shows at the Hammersmith Odeon in, I'm going to say, November 76. And, of course, they were incredible. But Pete took me to the party afterwards. I didn't even know there were parties afterwards or how the whole thing worked. I've written about that elsewhere on the Patreon site uh, in the story, how the whole fucking thing started. So I won't repeat it here. What I will get into is stuff that I don't think I've ever written about. <clears throat> My first review, I didn't tell Pete I was trying to write reviews because I didn't want him to feel obliged to somehow lend a helping hand or, or 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 think that I wanted him to I didn't want him to know anything about it if I if I got in there it would be under my own steam and sure enough I got a few live reviews published and he must well, he did he saw them and anyway we started hanging out again he was married by this point I was 19 so he would have been about 21 he was married or he was living with the girl he was going to marry, who was Marina. And I went to visit them in their tiny flat in, I'm going to say, Acton, West London. And, um, of course, it was fascinating to me. It was just like a one room with a tiny kitchen kind of deal downstairs flat. 
And there was his desk with his big typewriter and loads of pages. And, and um, I was still trying to be a writer. So I would write literally with a dictionary by the typewriter, trying to think of clever words to make my reviews seem clever. And I'd got a few little reviews published. And then um, uh, he, he was, and the irony was he was now leaving. He was about to leave the staff. He'd had enough. He'd had four or five years of it and he was moving on. Whereas I was desperately trying to get on the ladder. And, um, but in this period, he would still do the occasional thing. And, and I remember very clearly two, one review, one feature. He reviewed Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. And it was at a show in Manchester. So I'm going to guess it was the Apollo. And he just wrote this fabulous review and it was just full of fun and full of life. And the two things that struck me now that I was looking at this stuff as a writer was how kind of free-flowing and fun it was compared to my stuff, which was really airless and uh, I'm going to say compact, but really it was up its own ass because I was striving so hard to be a writer. Where Pete, it was just a natural flow. Pete was not remotely interested in what the clever word was. He just gave it to you straight as a, a really kind of exciting contact high. And the other thing I noticed was it was Manchester. I'm thinking, does that mean he had, well, obviously he had to go to Manchester. Did they take him to Manchester? How glamorous. And then a few weeks later, um, he had a feature published on Rainbow. I might get the chronology wrong here. Long time ago. Um, but he'd been to Japan. And um, like right at the beginning of the story, he's at the hotel and the first person he sees is Jimmy Bain, someone I would get to know very well later on. And, and, he, and in the story, I remember this, it was like Jimmy says to Pete, so what's going on in London, man? And Pete replies, not a lot. And uh, I just remember thinking, how cool, how cool that sounded. Um, but anyway, just as I'm desperately trying to go from reviewing shows to maybe reviewing a record or the, the Holy Grail, would you like to review the singles this week? Ooh. It took me about six months before I could, uh, they would let me actually write a, a feature, do an interview with someone. Um... So it's really early days for me. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And he's already on the other side of the rainbow. So time goes by. We're not in touch. Um, and then in 1979, I got a job at a company called Heavy Publicity. I later became a partner in the firm. But at the time, I was still uh, just a regular person they'd hired. And um, out of the blue, Pete, who's been sort of out of the scene for a couple of years which in those days was an eternity uh, suddenly reappears and I'm in this bizarre situation where this guy I used to know in a different time and place is now a sounds journalist he'd gone back to sounds and I was a PR and and in those days that meant you know that was a not like now where people send emails and no one gives a shit really about the music press. Back then, PRs really had to uh, go out on a limb for music journalists and it had to be fun and it had to be high and it had to be full on. And um, it was fascinating, again, just to work with him because he, he had such a such a lot of experience. All the bands knew him. All the bands are so pleased to see him. And let me tell you, as a PR, one of the first things I, I kind of painful lessons I learned was that bands hate music journalists. Can't wait for them to leave the dressing room. I only really started to understand people in bands and that world after I stopped being a music journalist and started working in publicity. Uh, therefore working for the groups. And we did Wild Horses, Black Sabbath, Journey, The Damned, uh, Ultravox for a few gigs, um, 
tons of people. And that whole circle, Thin Lizzy, ACDC, you know, all the roadies, the PRs, everybody in the business that worked in that area all kind of knew each other. And there were very few music journalists in that scene because everybody would clam up when they showed up because the press was very, very influential back then. Uh, three TV channels in the UK, one national radio music channel that would certainly would not play Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or whatever. Um, play a Thin Lizzy single if it was a hit. Um, Queen, for sure. Led Zeppelin, not on your Nelly. Um, there was Alan Fluff Freeman on a Saturday afternoon on Radio 1. Later, there was Tommy Vance with his Friday Rock show. But basically, if you if you weren't, um, fuck knows, the Osmonds or the Bay City Rollers or, you know, one of that fucking thing, um, you weren't going to get on the radio. You certainly weren't going to get on the telly unless you had a single in the charts. Or you might get on the old Grey Whistle Test, which was the most boring music programme of all time, but watched religiously because it was the only place where you might just occasionally see someone really good that you would not see anywhere else um so yeah now i'm the pr and pete's the journalist but he was so exceptional the bands loved him i remember one of the first stories he did it wasn't something i organized um but it was something pete did with motorhead who of course had known him since you know since lemmy was in hawkwind uh, and we did the PR for Hawkwind. We did girls' school for a while, I think. The Damned. And they were all managed by Doug Smith, who also managed Motorhead. And so, again, it was all part of that world, that scene. Our offices were two minutes' walk from each other. We'd go to the same pub. Uh, and Pete just had this idea of taking Motorhead to the zoo. And, again, it kind of demonstrated to me an aspect of music journalism I just hadn't really got my head round. You know, I was still reading Nick Kent in the NME. Um, and Pete took Motorhead to the zoo. And it was just the most brilliant, funny feature. Great pictures. So I always had a... Always looked up to Pete. He always seemed to be so far ahead of me. But he wore the whole thing so lightly. Absolutely feather touch. Which again was interesting because when I'd first known him and used to go around, he lived at his mum and dad's when I first knew him. I'd go around there and he'd have his entourage and we'd all be playing records till five in the morning and taking speed and smoking dope. Um, and he always had the cool, first time, coolest records. First time I ever heard Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers at Pete's place. First time I ever heard Anarchy in the UK at Pete's place first time i ever heard jj kale at pete's place um but he he struck me in those very early days as quite serious you know he was very in control and very much uh the lion on his throne but again not rubbing it in very light touch now in 7980 he's he's sort of different I think maybe because he'd left the magazine. I think by then maybe me and him and um, Marina had split up or complications had ensued. Usual stuff. Um, but he was much more kind of free-flowing. And there came a moment, and I'm going to say the summer of 1980. In fact, it was because by then I was frazzled. Heavy publicity was all about cocaine and everything else on top. And um, I was now a partner. And the whole thing was, was I was really unhappy in a really bad place and no amount of cocaine would cheer me up. I just, I just was crawling the walls. I wanted out, didn't know what to do. I remember Pete, who was back living at his mum and dad's again. They were a wonderful Polish couple, expat Polish couple that had a big old house in Ealing. Lots of rooms we could hide in. And I just went over there for a few weeks. And every day, it was a summer, and every day we'd go to the local park to what he called the spot that gets you hot. And we would just lie around in the sun. 
uh, he'd steal some Valiums from his mum's medicine chest and we'd take those. And then we'd go to the local wine bar, drinking Buck's Fizz. Pete was very much an Ealing wine bar guy in those days, which meant I was too. I remember a few times the people at Heavy Publicity would send over an envelope full of cash. Um, and it was just dreamlike. We just kind of did that. And then there were lots of other occasions like that over the coming years. Um, I'm thinking now of 1980. Uh, by now, heavy publicity is gone. Another story for another time. Uh, and I'm gone. I can't bear it anymore. Not long after the spot that gets you hot. I, I, I went back for a few months and I just couldn't handle it. I left. And I became a £10 a night dishwasher uh, at a posh burger place in Ealing called Crusts. This was a very novel idea at the time that you would go to a place and you might order champagne or wine or cocktails and all the waitresses were gorgeous and flirty. But the menu was all burgers. Kind of pre-vegetarian era, clearly. But all burgers, but gourmet burgers. We'd never heard of such a thing. I don't even know if we had McDonald's at that point. We had wimpy bars. Or we had uh, bird's eye burgers you could buy and fry. But a place that made its own, these big thick stuff with all kinds of different toppings. First time I went there, um, they gave me my meal free. Uh, just to entice me to come back. The gorgeous waitress came and sat down at the table while she took the order and flirted with us, you know, um, rather wonderfully. And so it was a cool hangout. Um, but nevertheless, £10 a night washing dishes. Uh, and in the middle of that, I got a phone call which led to me from Black Sabbath, who had been doing the Dio era, um, saying they wanted to have some music journalists come to New York and cover their show at Madison Square Garden. And again, long story short, um, I got Steve Gett, who was kind of like a 2.0 Pete Mikowski, not remote, a terrible writer, really useless, but one of those very fan, very fan-like, very young, and the bands liked him. Robert Plant loved him, you know, that sort of thing. And he wrote for Melody Maker. Michael Watts, their deputy editor, used to rewrite everything he did to make it Melody Maker's standard. But nevertheless, Steve had this uh, tremendous cachet to the point where he was now living in New York. Um, so I got in touch with him. He would do a piece for Melody Maker when we got to New York. And I got hold of Pete. And Pete would do a piece for Sounds. And so I went to America for the very first time with Pete Mikowski, the two of us sat on a plane. Um, I remember I had five pounds in my pocket. And we got to New York and we had just enough money to get a taxi into town. And we were staying at the Waldorf Astoria. Which, I don't know what the, equ the equivalent in London would be, what? The Savoy? The Dorchester? It was a sort of place where you had Jack Jones singing in the bar, you know, and uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in their own suite and that kind of thing. And Sabbath was staying there, so me and Pete were staying there. And um, they gave me a month's worth of money in a ca in cash in an envelope. And the equivalent it was about $1,200, I seem, or $2,600, all in cash in an envelope. And a limousine to uh, ferry us around for the weekend. I mean, I'm now in fantasy land. I can't, I'm 22. I've got $2,600 in cash. I'm staying at the Waldorf Astoria, everything paid for. And I've got a limousine, everything paid for. And I've got Pete Mikowski as my guide. Fuck. Um. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And he was an amazing guide. Uh, we were supposed to fly. We flew on the Friday, supposed to fly back on the Sunday. But Pete persuaded me that that was a very bad idea. And that basically, because you could, I don't know how it works anymore. But back then, if you bought a ticket... You could uh, call up and say, I want to change the return flight, you know, till two weeks from now or something. Um, and so we did. We just called and said, no, we're not doing the flight back on Sunday. We'll let you know when we want to come back. And entirely through Pete's contacts, uh, we ended up staying in New York for another week. We were not in the Waldorf Astoria. We were now staying in the Gramercy Park um central park west i think very seedy um apartments really rooms apartments so we shared a kind of mini apartment um which he got someone else to pay for um and we spent the whole week running around getting everything paid for by interviewing people or pretending to review shows i wasn't even writing for anybody at that point but I remember he he fixed up an interview for me with the the manager of the Ritz Club, which was newly opened back then, but then became a you know, very well-known venue. A bit like the Lyceum in London, a big ballroom. And I went and interviewed the manager uh, under the guise of uh, interviewing him for Ritz magazine in London, which... <laughs> Which was insane. Ritz magazine in London was, uh, you know, pictures of de debutantes and aristocrats and uh, that kind of thing. Anyway, no internet in those days. You can't just Google and check. If someone says they're from London and they're from Ritz magazine, well, fair enough. And this went on and, you know, we'd tell people Pete was writing something for sounds and I was doing something for someone else and just a load of bullshit. But it got us in everywhere. I did interviews with all kinds of people. Dave Davis, Jack Green. I'd never even heard of Jack Green. Um, and uh, and then we went to see Papa John Keach at some bar. We saw Woody Allen at Michael's playing his clarinet. It was insane. Um, and then best of all, we went to we blagged tickets to see David Bowie, who was appearing in The Elephant Man. I remember David Cassidy was sitting in front of us and a few other people. And uh, this, this, all of this came about because Pete Mikowski was with me and Pete Mikowski organised the whole lot. Um, I actually became, and Psychedelic Furs, we did stuff with them. They all knew, oh, Pete, you know, great, man, yeah, this is Mick, hey. Endless. Um, and then uh, by the end of that week, uh, someone in London had actually organised me a proper trip to fly to San Francisco um, and do a proper piece for sounds on split ends. I can't remember the order of events. I think by then I may have um, persuaded sounds to let me, you know, start reviewing the odd thing again for them. Must have done. So I flew to San Francisco, hooked up with split ends. They took me on to Los Angeles, spent another week there. I'd never been to America before. Left Pete in New York. I can't even remember how he got home or when he got home. But I remember I got home and I was sleeping on a camp bed. My mum and dad's house, sleeping on a camp bed in the same bedroom as two of my brother's. And I slept solidly for three days and three nights when I got back. Then, um, don't know, a few years go by 
and by 84, 85, I'm writing for Kerrang. Um, Pete had, his career had taken off again. Him and Ross Halfin started doing all those crazy stories we now remember in sounds. Richie Blackmore wearing stockings and suspenders. Um, all kinds of stuff. UFO, of course. Uh, and I remember these were the days when record companies had just oodles of cash and nothing to spend it on when it came to rock bands because Radio 1 wasn't interested and neither were The Enemy and neither were Melody Maker and Record Mirror were the only other paper and they only did pop stuff. And I remember Pete went on tour with Nazareth in North America and Canada for about three weeks and then didn't even write a story and people just kind of laughed it off. Uh, there was another famous occasion where Pete and Ross Halfin a drunk at Heathrow Airport on their way to New York, missed the plane because they were still in the bar, then missed the next plane because they were still in the bar. And then somehow in their drunkenness, just blagged seats on Concord. Um, and the record company didn't get the bill until weeks later, at which point they went insane. Um but what's she going to do? I don't even know what band they were doing, but they, they obviously turned the story in. And so all was forgiven. These were the crazy, hazy days, and, and Pete absolutely lived them. By the mid-'80s, though, um, I finagled my way onto Kerrang. I thought I'd be there about three months, ended up staying nine years. And uh, Pete had gone down the rabbit hole of heroin addiction as had a lot of us at different times and I remember and I kind of I was the one that now accompanied Ross I remember being in LA once with Ross and him saying I just can't understand what happened to Pete you know why Pete isn't here and I remember saying rather callously I remember saying yeah well Pete blew it um because a lot of my friends, I felt, had blown it. The ones that hadn't got over the whole smack thing, that hadn't got their shit together, that hadn't realised, you know, you just can't keep doing that stuff. I'd done that. I was healthy. You know, my hair gleamed when I had hair. I had girlfriends. I had a career. And Pete was somewhere, God knows where, some den of iniquity. I found out later that, of course, all the people like Slash and all the, the you know, when Guns N' Roses first came to London, for instance, all knew Pete because of the heroin connection and because he was Pete Mikowski. Um He just always was that super fucking cool guy. Girls loved him. Boys wanted to be him. Pete didn't give a fuck or appeared not to. So we did reconnect a little bit <clears throat> but he blotted his copybook he came to visit my girlfriend once when I was in America under that sort of guise of you know will you take my girlfriend to the pictures while I'm away that sort of thing and uh, she called me and said he's been in the toilet for an hour I don't know what to do and I just thought oh man that's so not cool and so I kind of blackballed him from my life for a while um, but then leap forward another couple years, we come to the early 90s when my career is now on the skids. And Pete is slowly getting back in the game. He was completely clean and sober. It had taken him a fuck of a long time. But he did a whole 180. Um, he got clean, he got sober. He became a drugs counsellor, helping other people. N.A., A.A., I don't really know all the details. I just know um, he completely turned his life around, but in a major, major way. Um, all I had done really was cut out the bad stuff, but still drank too much, smoked too much, would snort too much if someone brought it out, which, of course, they always did. Um no, that wasn't for him. He he really, really did understand the nature of addiction much better and dealt with it in a completely kind of clinching style. He got fit, he got clean, he looked great. 
He renewed his friendship with Ross. Ross had always adored him. And it kind of coincided with this period where uh, Jimmy Page and I, you know, became good mates at a time when Jimmy had also kind of lost all his mates through addiction. Um, Ross begged me to introduce him to Jimmy. Uh, went through this whole rigmarole of uh, getting me... To... Jimmy always had these Christmas parties. And uh, another story for another time. But I brought Ross with me, introduced him, told Jimmy he's someone he should know. Cut to a few years later. Ross is now Jimmy's best mate. And it was kind of a relief to me because... Um, you know, when someone's very needy and you sense the loneliness and you sense the neediness, Jimmy was kind of in that zone and I just couldn't deal with it. I was too young. I was too busy wanting to travel all the time and get my own shit together. And I just found it all a bit much. But Ross steamed in, you know, absolutely steamed in and and uh, he and Jimmy, uh, to this day, you know, they're, they're kind of wedded. Um, and into that milieu came Pete. So that for the last, I don't know how long, over 10 years, 15 years, Ross and Jimmy and Pete uh, were, you know, the three amigos. Um, none of them were married anymore. Uh they were all uh, solo and they traveled together and they would go everywhere together. Uh, and the fact that Ross was um, so determined, you know, to be clean and sober. Ross had never been addicted to drugs, but, um, uh, you know, he really detested people that got too drunk or smoked or did anything that was untoward, really. He's quite a Puritan at heart. Um and, of course, that suited Pete. Um, and it suited Jimmy for a while. Jimmy Jimmy has been strictly clean and sober for many years now. There was an overlap. There was a Venn diagram where it wasn't all three of them at the same time. But certainly the last 10 years or more, that's been the case. And um, after I did my Zeppelin book, another story, but after I did that, you know, Jimmy wouldn't talk to me anymore. And um, and Ross, of course, being Ross, uh, Jimmy, very much Ross's kind of uh, backstage pass to any show in the world. Um, and Ross being Ross uh, closed down on me eventually. Um, being protective of Jimmy, but also, you know, terribly proprietorial, you know, terrified someone might come in and uh, be better friends with Jimmy. Not that I ever wanted or would have been that, but that's Ross. And uh, it's unpleasant. Um, but it's not all his fault. He can't help it. Pete somehow managed to straddle both worlds and was always wonderful and generous and funny and kind. I got him, when I was the editor at Classic Rock, I got him doing a few bits and pieces. Um, he could never keep to the word count. He was he was just always late. Late copy was something Pete and I had in common, but he was the master of it. And as the miserable editor of Classic Rock, as I was at the time, I was, these were my misery years, uh, I couldn't be doing with it. But again, cut to a few years later... Uh, after I'd left the magazine, I would sometimes come in and edit specials, slash special, bad company special or whatever it was. And I would always get Pete to do something because he always was a great writer. The last um, proper conversation I had with Pete was a few years ago. I was doing uh, a Saturday night and a Sunday night show at Planet Rock. And it would finish at midnight. And uh, particularly on a Saturday, it was, it was terrible trying to get home because the station was based in Leicester Square in those days. And um, coming out of the station at, you know, quarter past 20 past 12 on a Saturday night, 
it was packed, packed with drunk people, party people, revelers. Uh, even on the coldest night, women with hardly any clothes on, men lying face first in the gutter. And you have to kind of make your way through all this to get to, I used to park at the car park in Chinatown. Trying to drive out of that car park could take about 40 minutes. The queue would be backed up. And then trying to inch your way through the revelers who, God forbid, you should touch them or they only notice you at the last minute, would bang on the bonnet and bang on the windows. It was shit. But finally, you'd escape to tra Charing Cross Road and up to the A40 and off I'd be on my way back to Oxfordshire. And this particular night um, was particularly grueling and probably took over an hour to get from the car park to Charing Cross Road, which is a two-minute walk. Um, and I don't know who rang who. I have no idea who rang who or why, but I was talking to Pete on the hands-free. And um, we were just having the most wonderful conversation. I was trying to persuade him to write his own memoir of his life, do a kind of his own version of Paranoid, um, but make it heightened and um, just tell his own stories because he really did have stories to tell. I said he should do it in two parts. And because he was such a good friend of Peter Perrett of The Only Ones, who was yet another junkie rock star that adored Pete, I, I said you should make it in two parts. Make part one Lovers of Today, which was the first Only One single. And then part two, you should make it Another Planet, meaning... That was Lovers of Today then, Another Planet Now. And we had a good laugh about that, but I could tell there was no way he was going to do it. Pete trying to write a whole book uh, just wasn't within his grasp at that point. Um, although I wish he had applied himself and done it. Um, but anyway, we're talking, we're talking. It used to take me a couple of hours to get home. And we were still talking as I pulled up onto the drive of the house where I lived at the time. And then I sat in the car, still talking to him, till the conversation finally ended. And I walked through the door at about three in the morning. And that was the last really serious, long conversation I had with Pete. And it was a few years ago. Um, there were lots of other memories, stuff we did together. Um, he had that fantastic group, The Snivelling Shits, with Giovanni Dodomo singing. Um, one of my all-time favourite groups. For me, they were up there with the Sex Pistols. Better, really, because they had more imagination and intellect. Uh, go online and find Is God a Man. Um, they also used to do lots of pseudonyms for names. So Is God a Man was came out under the name of Arthur Comics. C-O-M-I-X. Arthur Comics. And, uh, and also I Can't Come, that was the snivelling shits. If you go on Spotify, they've actually got about 12 or 15 shits tracks, all of them amazing. Pete on guitar, Geo on vocals, Dave Fudger, who was a, an editor on Sounds on Bass, and the drummer, I th think from Eddie and the Hot Rods, whose name I can't remember. And the sessions are all produced by Ed Hollis, who had been Eddie and the Hot Rods producer at Ireland and was himself a tremendous junkie, um, but just fantastically imaginative stuff. It was Geo and Pete's band, and the stuff was brilliant. I had to see them play at the Speakeasy quite a lot, so we're talking late 70s there. Um, and then in recent years, Pete got that band back together I don't know the guy he had singing. I can't remember his name and I never really knew him. But he had a sort of vaguely Geo-esque voice. But I remember a few years before that trying to persuade Pete to let me be the singer. And he was like, nah, you haven't got the right voice. I'm like, I can fake it. I can fake it. Um, but it never panned out. But it's nice now to think that they did, they did a whole bunch before the pandemic. They did a whole bunch of gigs. It all seemed to be going quite nicely. And then my most recent experiences of Pete were when uh, 
after the first lockdown when he finally got back he was in thailand and spent most of it out there when he finally got back to london he moved into a new flat in ealing his spiritual home my spiritual home um and on his facebook he would post pictures of he'd go walk around ealing taking pictures of things that would only be fascinating if you knew ealing so of course what absolutely fascinating to me he was always frequenting junk shops and secondhand places and he had a very big vinyl habit and he was constantly buying all these secondhand 50p or pound a shot lps and photographing them and putting them up and talking about them far more than me he really was a music lover music came first then i think the writing um, for me, it's always been the other way around, the writing and then the music. Um, but it could so easily be other stuff for me. It's always the writing that I t get turns me on. I don't buy secondhand records. I buy secondhand books. But Pete was who he was. Um, I think he was running the Jimmy Page website or something like that. You know, he was always getting work because Jimmy doesn't like to talk to people that, you know, don't already love him, which is why I got so many interviews with him back in the day and why Pete uh, kind of replaced me in that role over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. In fact, as I'm saying that, I realise that he and I kind of swapped positions quite a few times in life. I remember in about 1980... I was in the sounds office one day and Pete was in Sri Lanka or somewhere. He's long gone. And Robbie Miller, hang on, that's Coco the heavy metal pug. Hang on. What do you want? You want to get out? Go on then. Sorry, that was Coco the heavy metal pug who had burst into my little study as I was doing this. And that was whimpering to get out again. Can't blame him. Um, I've forgotten what I was saying. Yeah, we kind of, we kind of, like two swimmers. You know, one was leading, then I was leading, then he was leading. Oh yeah, sounds. Robbie Miller, a dreadful journalist. Um, she and a bitch. You know, I remember she said to me one day, "So Mick." What are you going to do when Pete Mikowski gets back from Sri Lanka? Because then you'll be out of a job. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. And I thought, actually, that could that could happen. That might be true. But, of course, it wasn't true. Um, Pete and I, our lives and our careers ran parallel a lot of the time. But he was a different guy to me. And um, he was truly special truly special i learned so much from his writing i learned so much from him as a human being and my main memories as i sit here now thinking of him are of him smiling of him laughing of him absolutely making the most of every moment and whether that was a fantastically put together veneer put together over the years um, or real I think it was real probably a bit of veneer like we all have but mostly real I remember once in fact talking to him on the phone another time and uh, he was I think he was down in Southampton or Portsmouth working at a drug counselling place rehab facility and um, it was a landline and I remember um, you know that thing where you go bye bye and one of you doesn't quite hang up but they don't realise they haven't hung up. And he did that. And all I could hear was him doing whatever he was doing. It sounded like he was in the kitchen or sorting out stuff in a cupboard or something. And he was just singing away to himself and chirping away and very happy. When a, a mutual friend of ours told me a couple of weeks ago that Pete was ill, um, I still don't know the details. So I might. This all might be completely wrong but what I was told secondhand was that he'd collapsed or he'd fallen over six or eight weeks ago um, 
and when taken to the hospital was diagnosed with a tumour on the brain or tumours, I'm not sure. Um, the hospital he was taken to gave him all the wrong drugs and he spent a couple of horrific weeks hallucinating and in a terrible state. His sister Yvonne, beautiful Yvonne, um, came to his rescue, took him out of that hospital, got him into another place in London and um, where they gave him the correct drugs and took really good care of him. But what I was told was that he was just sleeping all the time, needed rest, but that it was late stage cancer. I desperately wanted to go and visit him, but it, <laughs> COVID, you know, the whole fucking protocols and all this fucking bullshit, uh, which is another story, meant I had to wait for, you know, the correct moment. Um, and sadly, it never came. He died last Thursday. And uh, I'm fucking heartbroken. I'm fucking heartbroken. I don't know when the funeral is. I really want to go. I really hope I can go. I really hope someone lets me know when it is or where it is. Uh, because, Pete, I love you and I've loved you all my life. And will continue to do so. God bless you. And thank you for everything. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How do I stop this, Fern?